Well, we shall move on to our Bible reading for today that the message is based on. So we're in Mark's Gospel, of course. Uh, if you haven't tuned in before, we're going through this this account by Mark. He he wasn't one of the he wasn't one of the apostles or anything. Uh, he was an eyewitness, and so he he put together this historical account of Jesus's life, and it's one of four accounts recorded for us: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and. And this one, of course, is, is is special. Each one of them is 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 different from the other, in in terms of the emphasis that it places on, on things. And so, we're in we're in the eighth chapter of Mark, Mark chapter eight, and we're starting to read this week at verse thirty four. Mark eight, verse thirty four. And. When he, that's Jesus, had called the people unto him with the disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power Amen Now <clears throat> you may remember from last week there was an incident with Peter Jesus had decided it was time to tell the disciples and, and those others about the real purpose that he came into this world. He came to suffer and die. And although he went on to explain that he would rise from the dead and ascend to heaven, back to his father's side, it was still hard to take in. And it hit Peter especially hard he was embarrassed, really, that the this long-awaited Messiah, uh, who who had come, was now talking about his defeat. The disciple, he, he made this, didn't he? He made this clear confession that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, and yet somehow he believed this Messiah had made a mistake. So Peter took him to one side and told him he shouldn't be talking so negatively. And we remember the rebuke that Jesus comes back with him in, uh, comes back at him with, he, he, he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, this is one of the most severe things Jesus said to anyone. Well, this week we jump back into the story where we left off. 
no sooner has Jesus rebuked Peter than he, he turns to all the people to make another shocking uh, statement. And the essence of it is this. If someone wants to be Jesus' disciple, he or she must be prepared to suffer like Jesus. He must be prepared to even die like Jesus did. Now if the disciples found it difficult to understand that Jesus himself was going to suffer, I mean how much harder would it have been to be told this particular bad news? The, the Christian life is to be one of bearing your cross, carrying your cross and following Jesus no matter where he leads. So the believer needs to understand that just as Jesus had the victory through suffering, so our part in that victory also comes through suffering. And remember, this message of his wasn't just for the disciples. It says that he called all the people to him. And anyone who agrees to the being recruited into the army of Jesus Christ must understand that they're going to war. And even though even though the victory in that war is is assured already, the believer needs to prepare themselves for injury and death if necessary before they can enjoy the end of their warfare. I want to digress for a few moments to comment on something we read towards the end of our reading. Now chapter 8 finishes with a reference to the Son of Man coming with his holy angels. And and then we finished with the first verse of chapter 9. And he, he uses similarly dramatic language there too. The kingdom of God is coming with power, he's, it says there. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you can maybe just remind yourself of what verse 38 said. And if you thought verse 38 was referring to the end of the world with the return of Jesus Christ as the great judge, I'd say that was a that was a fair understanding of it. But if you also thought that the beginning of chapter 9 was referring to the same event. <laughs> you, you have a problem, don't you? Because Jesus says that th that event would be so soon that some of the people standing around him on that day would see it. Now, I don't think I need to say this, but Jesus wasn't mistaken. He, he, he didn't believe that the, the final judgment would be about to take place in just a few years. The answer to the riddle, if you like, is that Jesus is talking about two different things. It's very likely in the first one, in verse 38, he's talking about the final judgment. Yeah. I just want to remind you that the Bible often uses 
very dramatic language in describing important events or changes. And I've, I've mentioned in the past, you know, about things in the book of Revelation or the book of Acts, where an important event or change is described as the coming of God in power. And when this coming in power type of language is used in the Old Testament, it's associated with war. It's the language of war. So let me just be clear. Any manifestation of God, especially if he's coming in an attitude of judgment, could be referred to in the way that Jesus does here. That means that all we're left with really is, is, is uh, we, we can just guess, we can make educated guesses about what he was referring to in the beginning of chapter 9. What, what what was it that was what what does he mean about about coming in this way it, was did he mean that that they were going to see the transfiguration where where Jesus's uh, appearance was was changed and he became we'll see next week he became uh, bright and glorious and looked like someone who belonged in heaven that's what it was or was it his resurrection? He, he he certainly died, but he rose from the dead. That's the very basis, isn't it, of our faith. He rose from the dead. And maybe it was that referred to. Perhaps it was the destruction of Jerusalem. Shortly after Jesus died, the, Jerusalem was invaded. It, the pagan armies, you could say they were led but by the Son of God. Because ultimately, all the armies of this world, all the all the the, the, the sort of all the, the uprisings and invasions, they, they are they are moved by God. God will often get a, a pagan army to invade someone as a means of punishing that nation, and then the pagan army itself. The country of origin of the pagan army will be will be punished themselves. So it's all very fair. So transfiguration, resurrection, was it the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, perhaps it was all of those things. Perhaps it was all those and, and other things as well. Um, but certainly, what would the, some of the people around Jesus that day, what would they have seen? They would have seen the beginnings. They would have seen the beginnings of the great gospel age that would see victory after victory over thousands of years as these untold millions of God's chosen ones were, were brought in to, to a relationship with him. Well, Let's take a look now at, let's take a look at Jesus's uh, message, Jesus's actual message here. I have three points and the first one is, we're going to look at what it means to deny yourself. Jesus said you must deny yourself. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Now the use of the word deny today is not exactly the same as it was then. <clears throat> 
So today we might say someone was accused of something, but they denied it. They denied everything. It, it wasn't them. Although you might use it in another way. You might say that you, you know, one, let's say at Christmas, you, you didn't want to, you'd been on a, a diet maybe, like, and like I often am, and you, but you didn't want to deny yourself a good time at Christmas, and so you ate some mince pies and things. So, really, the denial spoken about here is about disowning something. It's not just about doing without something or doing without lots of things. There's a word used to describe those, especially those monks, you know, those medieval monks. Uh, asceticism. It was, um, it was a way of thinking that you could by by starving yourself and 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 flogging yourself and things and strange things like this, that you could you could somehow please God. Well. I go even further and say, denying yourself, it isn't even just about disowning certain sins. Although, obviously, disowning sins is part of it. To de- to deny yourself is to renounce the self. Now, by our very nature, the self dominates our lives. The way of Jesus is to put aside what you want and make what he wants the most important thing in your life. It says here in Galatians, Galatians 5 and 24, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Crucified. The person you were when you came into this world needs to be killed. The self needs to be killed. It might help us to understand more clearly what denying ourselves means if we think about what denying Jesus meant. Now hopefully you'll remember. Think about poor Peter again. Do you remember what happened when he denied Jesus? Now that runaway mind, that runaway mouth of his would continue to get him into trouble but his most tragic failure had to be when he denied Jesus Christ after boasting that he'd never disown his master, he did just that and he did it very passionately as well, swearing his head off in his denial of Jesus he claimed not to know the man he was ashamed of him And I'm sure he spoke about Jesus in a bad way also. So the denial of self is similar when we deny our own selves. What do you do with that old man that haunts your soul with temptation to sin? You have nothing to do with him. You show him you're ashamed of him. You speak badly of him. You're now a new man or woman on a new path following a new master. And in your thoughts, 
in your words, in your actions, you show that Jesus means everything to you. You're to take up your cross. It refers, of course, to the method of execution used by the Romans. They would dangle someone to uh, a stake, uh, maybe in a cross shape, and they would just leave them. And they, 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 would, they, would, they would finish them off in the end, uh, maybe after a few days, and just to make sure they were dead. Um, as a final act of humiliation for the criminals, they were forced to, to take the piece of wood that they would be crucified on, maybe just the, maybe just the cross beam, if it was in a T-shape, maybe just that cross beam. They were forced to carry that to the place of execution. And so they had to carry the very means by which they were going to die. Remember when Jesus says this, there's been no mention of how he will die. But he uses the manner of his coming um, uh, sentence and execution to represent those things his followers need to steal themselves for. Peter, uh, when he wrote a letter later on, said this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Think it not strange, it's to be expected. The Christian life is ideally to be a joyful one. But we should be prepared for hardness. If any of the disciples, I don't know if any of them, witnessed Jesus as he was paraded through those streets on the way to Calvary. I don't know if any of them witnessed that. But if they did, I expect that this message of his today would be ringing in their ears. Only then would the full force of what Jesus said really hit them. I imagine them looking and saying, so these are the lengths I need to prepare to go to in order to have Jesus as my Lord. A man must sacrifice his present life in order to obtain a better one, an eternal one. And it'll do you good brethren as well to always have in the back of your mind that the thought that you're, that you may be just hours from literal death too. I don't mean people who are el elderly alone. I mean everyone should have that state of mind. It puts things into perspective and it stops us from becoming too attached to the things of this world. Self-denial and there's a type of self-denial which is which which God's not one bit impressed by. Those who those who exercise a self-denial just to showcase their own self-made righteousness, just to show how holy they are. And of course, if they do that, they, they have no righteousness at all. And that tendency is everywhere, and it's thoroughly wicked. But there are warnings in Scripture for Christians too. They need to make sure they're not ashamed of Jesus or his doctrine, in fact. 
it says in uh, Timothy's uh, letter, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, that's Paul, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. Be a partaker in the afflictions, troubles of the gospel. So instead, what we do is we, we speak about him. We speak about Jesus freely to all as much as we can, whether it's family or friends or strangers. And we do that whenever we can. So that's what it means to deny yourself. So the second point is, why deny yourself? Why bother denying yourself? If you're living a life and you are pretty much enjoying it and you maybe have a career and you have little bit of money and you, you can buy things nice things and you can go out and socialize and you've got a few friends why would you want to deny yourself why would you want to stop thinking about yourself and put God first well Jesus essentially uses four arguments in this passage now you may not have picked up on it with the with the in our uh, English uh, translation, but there were there were four distinct points Jesus makes. So here's the first one: uh, Why deny yourself? Because to do otherwise would be to lose your life. That's in verse uh, thirty-five. Lose your life. Now the two words you see in the passage, life and soul, are the same word. They mean the same thing. So, on the surface of it, Jesus' argument makes no sense, does he? it? Do you want to save your life? Then you need to die. Do you want to die? Then you need to stay alive. It's clear Jesus is using a play on words. He's referring to life in two different ways. So what he means is this. If you want to preserve the sinful life that you have now, your end will be one of eternal destruction. If you sacrifice your sinful life now, the end will be eternal life and a happy one. So this business of being short-sighted can be explained maybe with an illustration. Imagine if I went to some guy, we'll call him Joe Bloggs, and I have a proposal for him. I give him a choice. Now, his first option is to receive £10 in his hand. I will just give him £10 or $10 in his hand for nothing. And he can go away and spend it and he never needs to repay it. But I give him a second option. I, I say, I tell you what, I will... I will keep the £10, so you get no money at all. But one in one year from now, I will give you £1,000 or £10,000. Now, it goes without saying, I hope, that he'd go for the second option. Certainly, he could, he could take the 10 and not believe the promise about the £1,000. He could just take the 10 and go... You know, 
a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and 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 so i'll just take the 10 and he can go off and he can he can go to the pub or he can go to the mcdonald's or he can go to a restaurant or something and and he could do something nice with it but it'll soon be gone and then he may just start to regret that decision So we can use that illustration with caution regarding the, 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 this choice, if you like, that Jesus presents men with. They can sacrifice the pleasures of this world. Not, not pleasure entirely, just the pleasures associated with this world, sinful things. They can sacrifice their own selves even for, for a short time, for a few years. But with the promise of a future eternity of of happiness and lots of friends and a beautiful environment or they can just live for the moment and carry on as normal they can chase after the distractions of this world their 10 pounds if you like will soon be gone and they'll have an eternity to think over and regret and cry and mourn about the insanity of the decision they made. There's a famous example in Genesis of someone who thought that way. If you take a look at Genesis 25 and verse 34, you'll remember this. Then Jacob gave Esau, his brother, bread and a a pottage uh, of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. If you're not familiar with that story, Jacob's out in the field and he's rustling up some some dinner and Esau comes across him and Esau is starving hungry and he says, give us something to eat. After all, he was his brother. Can I have some of your stew? And Jacob says, you know, as brothers do in a typically brotherly way. No, it's mine. It's mine. He says, "Come on, any I'll give you anything." And then Jacob says, "Okay, uh, you're the firstborn. You 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 get the inheritance. You you know, you, you um you get the birthright. So you give that to me, and I'll give you some stew." Well, Esau had been hungry, and that can be very unpleasant. But rather than suffer just a little bit longer, f- for the sake of a future inheritance he instead satisfied his immediate lusts and despised his birthright why deny yourself because to do otherwise will get you nothing that can be seen in verse 36 to do otherwise will get you nothing if you do choose unbelief and continue on as normal as you have done so far on that broad road that broad road that everyone else is on almost everyone that broad road road that just leads to destruction just just leading to a cliff and mankind just continues to walk on it and fall off the end if you like you can do that it'll end in destruction and you'll eventually realise that you have nothing 
because if you have if you if you happen in this life to to gain lots of money it will eventually go it'll either be wasted by you or it will be inherited by maybe children who'll argue amongst themselves about the will and then you know take the money and blow it on on a cruise around the world or something what a great ending well what if your heart and soul's in your career what if you you're maybe not money mad but you you just you just throw your your old heart into your career well that career will be finished soon even if you're young you need to understand how fast life goes and you, you will be you will be shocked when you reach 30 and 40 and 50 you will wonder what happened to the previous decade and time just races on and will not slow down for you and that career will soon be over and you will be replaced by someone younger and healthier and fitter and you will soon be forgotten but what if your life revolves around celebrities maybe you're like rock stars actors or those those socialite women on the television who can't act or sing but the some for some reason they're famous i think just for wearing lots of makeup but you'll have to watch as they get old despite all the work they have done on themselves they'll get old and they will get wrinkles and they will go gray just like you and if you live long enough if you get the blessing of a longer life than them you get to see them all die one by one reminding you of your own mortality you will get nothing Jesus's example uses what we call hyperbole it's exaggerating it's exaggerating the idea of a man's material success to the point where he owns the whole world do you remember it says what if what if you own the whole world so but try to imagine it it's imagine a man who arose in this world and he, he ended up somehow having all the money in the world and ruling the whole world a world dictator the likes of which has never been seen before there'll come a point when he is lying on his deathbed his money can't save him his worldly power can't save him certainly none of his friends can save him either the historian uh, Luke in the Bible s s says uh, this about, about a man who loved his, his life, his career and his money God said to him, thou fool this night thou soul shall be required of me of thee this night thy soul shall be required of thee then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided or uh, collected during your life then whose will those things be such a man is a fool he's about to meet his maker this guy is about to meet his maker God and he must stand before the judge penniless naked and already condemned why deny yourself because to do otherwise means your life can't be 
redeemed. Your life can't be saved by anything. That's in verse 37. You see, when we sin against God, and of course we all sin, we all sin every day. But when we sin, we build up a debt, if you like. It's like we build up a debt. We go into debt with God. Now, if someone harms an animal in this country we live in, they'd, if they're caught, they'll be prosecuted and they'll receive a sentence. But if that person harmed a human in the same way, then the sentence would be greater. And so we understand, don't we? There's a relationship between the importance of the, 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 the person, if you like, who's been offended, the importance of the victim, and the penalty that must be paid by the criminal. Think about God. Think about him and his holiness, his righteousness, his beauty. Think about all his perfections. He is so much higher than us and so much more important than any man. An offence against him who is of infinite worth must demand an infinite penalty. No amount of money can ever pay off the debt if you've sinned against God. Even our super billionaire guy couldn't afford to bail us out with, it, with, his, with his money. To reinforce that, have a look in Psalm 49 with me. Psalm 49 and verse 6 and 7 says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by, by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. It's pretty stark. When a man or woman or child realises they're in trouble with God, and that's the best thing that can ever happen, they should also realise there's no one in the whole world who can get them out of this trouble. But what if there was a man? What if there was a man who could help them? Not a man with a, a big truck full of, of cash, but a man who would take our place. He couldn't pay off the debt with, with, with money, but he could take punishment for us. He would present his own life as payment. That might work, but there's still a problem. The value of a man's life, no matter how great and noble we think he is the value of a man's life isn't nearly great enough to be sufficient payment for our crimes against God the debt's too big only one possibility remains the idea is so out of this world that if I hadn't heard it already I, I couldn't dream it up God must become a man and go in our place. 
the God who is completely sinless must come down and give his own life as a ransom for those that he wishes to save. This is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for his people. The master plan of the ages was drawn up way back before the world existed in that council of the the Trinity. And it was agreed. The Son was going to come to this world, born of a woman, so that he might become the sacrificial lamb for all those God had ordained or chosen to salvation. Only the blood of Jesus can save us. That is, only the death of Jesus can save us. One of the old uh, hymns I used to sing years ago, the chorus goes like this, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus referring, of course, to his death. Let's go on. Why deny yourself? Because to do otherwise means a lost eternity. Verse 38. Jesus is coming back soon. Now his idea of soon is very different from my idea of soon. Soon for me is, well, I want him to come back like in about half an hour. That's soon for me. But God works on a different time scale to us. But we do know this, that every 24 hours that passes, every time I wake up on a new morning, we are all one day closer to his return. And when Jesus comes, he will will split the whole human race, whoever lived into two classes. On one side will be his children. Those ones, they were given the gift of salvation. They Uh, these are the ones Jesus came into the world to save they in their lives they believed on Jesus Christ and they followed him they obeyed him and so both in their lives now and in eternity they'll be like trophies trophies uh, showing the, the great and glorious grace of God But on the other side of the divide will be those who don't belong to God. They're not God's children. He he will, he detests them. Because they, they snubbed the good things that they received in their lives. They chose to live for themselves rather than for God. And you know, many of those, many of them will be people who at, at some point in their lives claim to be followers of Jesus they claimed Jesus as theirs they they sang the songs and the hymns all about him they even prayed to him they may have even preached about him but when the tiniest bit of opposition came their way they denied Jesus imagine imagine to yourself an upstanding church going type of person in our own in our own generation they turn up at the meetings at new road and they talk they'll talk very highly about god 
and they'll seem very keen. But if hostility ever comes their way, their false profession is betrayed. They become embarrassed by being associated with Jesus. They agree with their opponents that the doctrines of the Bible are extreme and old-fashioned. The God of the Bible is not their God, they declare. They, they, they know God, but he's, he's not that God. He's a God of their own imagination. And folks, it breaks my heart to think about these people uh, at the end when Jesus comes. When Peter denied Jesus, remember they said, you were with him. He was with, he, he was with him. And he th- Peter thought, I'm going to get in trouble. So he said, no, I'm, I'm not with Jesus. I, I, he's nothing to do with me. And they kept asking him and he, he got more insistent and more furious. I don't know that man. I don't know what, want anything. I don't want anything to, anything to do with him at all. But you know, when as soon as he did that, he, he was he was in a place close to where Jesus was. I mean, Jesus got taken into a judgment hall and he, he got beat up and things. And Jesus saw Peter after Peter denied him, and he he, he glanced over with this look. And I think we can all agree that that look was one of disappointment, but also love. Not so for these people. When the end comes and Jesus looks on that that other group of people. The look that Jesus gives those in that day will be one of utter contempt. Now they might plead that they, they know Jesus, but he will say those chilling words to them. Who exactly are you? I don't know you. Get away from me. I never want to see you again. Brothers and sisters, we've considered what it means to deny yourself. We've considered how foolish it is not to deny yourself, to trade eternal happiness for some short-term gain. Here's my last point. What do we get if we deny ourselves? What benefit is there in denying ourselves? You know what the most marvellous thing about this arrangement that the Christian has, uh, what it is? He's not asked to have a short but utterly miserable existence now in order to have a never-ending state of happiness in the future. Now, if that's the way it was, I'd still do it. I'd still do it if if, if I was told that I'm just going to suffer. You know what? If if God said, you're going to suffer the pangs of hell for, for, for 70 years, but then live a glorious eternity of happiness, I would still do it. Because to do otherwise is, is just stupid. But it's so far from being like that, so far. Jesus, yes, tells us to expect suffering. He tells us to so ready ourselves that we would be prepared even to die a martyr's death. But he also sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts, into the hearts of those who trust him. And God, God the Holy Spirit, 
brings with him an abundance of gifts and presents. We're given a list of those things in scripture which characterise the person in whom the Spirit lives. And just in the first three, just in the first three, we get we get uh, love and joy and peace. Well, they're pretty good to start with. A love that's higher than anything we had previously. A joy that money cannot buy. And a peace existing in us, even, even in our darkest hours. I'm tempted to say it's a great deal, but salvation isn't a deal. Men can't just take it or leave it. God doesn't beg men to, 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 to believe on him. Salvation is a fixed purpose whereby God chooses, justifies, sanctifies and forever glorifies those who he determined to do so uh, before the world was. And I'm so thankful God didn't God didn't make salvation a take it or leave it offer because I'd have never chosen Jesus of my own accord not 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 in a million years and with respect friends neither would you thank God he sort of forced his way into our lives and changed us so that we then desired him above all other things we must deny ourselves each day we have to offer our entire selves as a living sacrifice day by day and it says here in in, in the scriptures in second timothy it says it is a faithful saying for if we be dead with him we shall also live with him The old preacher, J.C. Philpot, he puts it like this. I like this quote. J.C. Philpot said, Just in proportion as we're delivered unto death, an execution takes place on what the, what the creature, what we love, so does the life of Jesus begin to rise and make itself blessedly manifest. In other words... The more dead we are, the more alive we are. Remember, when it says take up your cross, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a serious business. And we, we, we sometimes talk about some minor issue and we think it's the end of the world. It could be we've been to a, a, a meeting, a church, and someone says something to us we don't like. And we feel awfully persecuted by it. <laughs> and we say, oh, it's just the cross that I have to bear. Well, trouble certainly comes in all forms in this Christian life, friends. But carrying your cross in those days was the, the image of it. The picture, it was really powerful to these people. They could be killed. They could be just taken away and killed any day. <laughs> It wasn't about, for them, worrying about p 
people making mistakes in etiquette or manners. I think, I think in the modern Western church, it's almost impossible for us to appreciate the sacrifices those early believers were prepared to make. Those who were in a right walk with God anyway. But that should be our aim. That should be our aim. We should be prepared to make those sacrifices. Those of us who are saved are not like those who are ashamed of Jesus. We love him. We we talk about him all the time and, and we like doing so. We want to read more about him in the Bible. We, lo- we love more than anything to to tell others the Christians, one of the Christians' greatest joy is for someone who's in, who has some kind of interest to ask them the question. So, what is all this about Jesus then? Tell me why Jesus had to die. Is can I can I be saved from the horrible future? Can you tell me how I can? You know, those questions they they're the things that excite the the believer, and so we work on, we work on towards. The glorious day that's promised to us, says here in 1 John, which we went through several months ago. And now, little children, abide or live in him, in, in Jesus, that, so that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What do we get if we deny ourselves peace and joy in this life? with suffering, with the promise of an eternity of unmixed and unparalleled happiness. Amen. Well, folks, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for for being here today. I, I can't see you. But I do know that some of you are watching and it is it is it is a blessing to me. Uh, my, my congregation is small. Even even when we take into account people, different people around the world who tune in, this congregation is quite small. That doesn't bother me in one one bit. Uh, my, 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 my whole life is primarily for this one thing to get you to think more highly of Jesus Christ and less of yourself. And that when I finish speaking each week, that you might not remember Paul Forrest, you might soon forget me, but that your thoughts would be taken up with with Jesus and how you can please him. We're going to leave it there. So I just want to um, finish with a blessing on you all. So now may the grace uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit go with you all today and in the week ahead. So there we have it, friends. I will um, I will see you all, God willing, a half ten, hopefully, next week. <laughs> Goodbye for now. <laughs>